0: hello everyone and welcome to roundhouse crosstalk a podcast hosted by the california state railroad museum we believe that our lives are made of railroad stories and we like to tell the story of the railroad through the stories of people our aim with this podcast is to amplify the stories of individuals whose legacies intersect with the railroad in this episode we'll sit down with debbie hollingsworth a guide one at the California State Railroad Museum, to talk about her hometown of Schenectady, New York, and the Transcontinental Railroad. All right, hello everybody, and welcome to to Roundhouse Cross Talk. I'm joined today by Debbie, our guide one at the California State Railroad Museum, who works and does a lot of the research for our different exhibits and um, presentations. Hi, how are you doing today?
1: Hi Jake, I'm doing great,
0: thanks. (laughs) So I think the first question people are gonna have when they click on this podcast episode is what in the world is a Schenectady?
1: (laughs) What in the world is a Schenectady? Uh, Well, Schenectady is actually a city located in upstate New York. So it's near the confluence of the Hudson and Mohawk Rivers. And you've probably heard of the Adirondack Mountains, so the Adirondack Mountains are located to the north, and you've probably heard of the Catskill Mountains. They're located to the south. So that Mohawk River that I talked about, that's connected, Schenectady's located on, goes kind of right through the Adirondacks to the north, the Catskills to the south. Now, it's also in the same metropolitan area as Albany, which is the state's capital. And I would say that's located roughly around 17 miles from Albany, It's also located about that same distance, 17 miles from another city called Troy. And I tell you about this because we kind of think of those as being all together since it's called the Capital District or the Tri-Cities area of upstate New York.
0: Uh, So now that we know a little bit about what Schenectady is, uh, what does it have to do with the railroad?
1: Well, I guess that's the question of the day, (laughs) isn't it? Over the years, as I've done researching for exhibits, both with the California State Railroad Museum, I worked at the California State Capitol Museum for a while, and I also worked with the Sacramento Archives. So that's the Center for Sacramento History. So in the process of doing this research, I kept coming across people who had these connections to Schenectady, Albany, Troy, that area. Um, So, you might be surprised how many of them there are. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Theodore Judah, Chief Engineer for the Central Pacific Railroad, there's Leland Stanford, President of the Central Pacific Railroad, E.B. Crocker, Business Manager for the Central Pacific Railroad, Charles Crocker, Superintendent of Construction for the Central Pacific Railroad. Then there's Thomas Durant, who's the vice president of the Union Pacific Railroad. And last, there's the Jupiter Locomotive. And they all have connections. So we call them Schenectady Connectities. And that's not original, that was a colleague of mine, because every time I would say, oh my gosh, look who's connected here. <laughs> she'd say, you found another Schenectady Connectity. So um, that, since they all have to do, you know, I call them the the power players of the Transcontinental Railroad, that they all have this connectity, I thought it was quite a big coincidence. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so that is very coincidental. Um, What's the answer, why why would that be?
1: Okay, so um, I think I'm gonna delay that answer a little bit and have a little history lesson, Mm -hmm. if you don't mind, to give you a little bit of background Mm -hmm. on the history of Schenectady. Are you with me on that? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Well, we're gonna go all the way back to the early 17th century when the English explorer, uh, working for the Dutch, by the way, he was working for the Dutch East India Company, Henry Hudson. We probably all know the name of Henry Hudson. Well, he traveled up the Hudson River, which of course was a river named for him, in search of the elusive Northwest Passage, as a lot of the explorers were back then. He was looking for something that he could get across this North American continent to trade with the Asian continent. Well, he took the Hudson River until he reached uh, present-day Albany. And the only westward body of water that he could find was this skinny little river that was westbound. And he was like, well, that's not gonna take me all the way. So he turned around, he kind of gave up, turned around and went back to New York. But I've been talking about Henry Hudson, and I feel like I need to say that, of course, he claimed New York for the Dutch, but he wasn't the first person here. Of course, he was met by the original people in New York, and uh, it wasn't unclaimed land. So they had lived here for several millennia before Henry Hudson ever came to New York. So in New York, we've come to know those first inhabitants as the Iroquois. But they actually call themselves the Haudenosaunee, which is the term that I will use for them instead of maybe the more familiar to us of the Iroquois. And Haudenosaunee actually means people who built a house. And in the 1600s, they formed an alliance of five nations. They might be names that we're familiar with, the Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Seneca tribes. And the reason that this is important is that they formed this great law of peace. And what the great law of peace did for the Haudenosaunee people was to give them instructions on how to treat each other. And it's one of the earliest examples of a formal democratic governance structure. And we can actually uh, pinpoint certain things that perhaps the Founding Fathers were inspired by this when uh, they set up the, the government. So, uh, so I just wanted to um, make that connection and talk about the Haudenosaunee. But we'll get back to that skinny little river that Hudson was dismayed about and turned around. That would be the Mohawk River. And as I said before, that the Mohawk River kind of split that Appalachian mountain chain. And it's important because it's one of the few places on the eastern seaboard that offered a westward route. And that will uh, come in handy. Well, when the politicians, when people are trying to figure out how to expand trade from just being on that eastern seaboard, those 13 original colonies, So even as far back as George Washington, he's trying to figure out, if we don't get up and over these Appalachian Mountains, we're never going to expand much beyond where we are now. And so there were different places throughout the South that they're trying to figure out maybe to build a canal, but the perfect place was to build a canal in upstate New York, right along where the Mohawk River was. And I think we probably know the name of a very famous canal that was built <laughs> I see you dancing to it yeah, already Play yeah.
2: songs <laughs> I got a mule Her name is Sal. Fifteen miles On the Erie Canal She's a good old worker And a good old pal Fifteen miles On the Erie Canal We haul some Badges in our day. Filled with lumber, coal, and hay We know every inch of the way we go From Albany to Buffalo <laughs> Such a good song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was in
1: 1825, and that was the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal opened to great fanfare. It was just the marvel of its day.
0: Perfect, well how did that canal, canal affect Schenectady and how does that relate to the railroad?
1: Okay, so the Erie Canal, as we heard in the song, stretched from Albany to Buffalo. So all along that Erie Canal, that opened up uh, places for cities and cities grew as a result of that. Between Schenectady and Albany, there's a big drop in elevation, or rise in elevation, depending on which way you're going, um, of about 200 feet. So between those two cities, they had to build in a series of locks, over a dozen locks. And if you've seen pictures of, say, the Panama Canal, or you realize that you know, the boat has to sit there in order for the elevation, for the water to rise or fall, depending on which way you're going, this system of locks takes a long time so that trip between albany and schenectady which i said before is only about 17 miles could take the whole entire day if you were taking a boat on the Erie canal and you wanted to get to albany that added a day to your trip so uh, so what are they what would you do with that well the answer is that there was the, a man who lived in schenectady his name was george And uh, he was actually an English resident. He grew up in England, so he paid a lot of attention to the progress of railroads Mm -hmm. in, in England. And he was obsessed with the idea of getting railroads started in New York. And he saw the perfect opportunity to help out in that distance, that short distance, lengthwise, but timewise was a very long distance mm-hmm. to bring the railroads in. Um, so what he did is he thought that that could take some pressure off the Erie Canal, when travel by train would have reduced that full day to just 40 minutes.
0: So what was the first excursion train like?
1: So the first excursion train, it's actually called the Mohawk and Hudson Railroad. It made its first trip on a hot day in August in 1831. And you ask what that excursion train was like. Well, let me just, I'll, I'll, I'll paint a verbal picture here since our listeners can't see any pictures of it, although you may have seen some pictures in some books about this. The, uh, the train, the engine bears very, very little resemblance to the railroads of today. The steam locomotive was the DeWitt Clinton. It was an 040 design. And as I said before, the the railroads were very strong in England at the time, so it's modeled after England's Stourbridge lion, if any of the listeners are familiar with that. The DeWitt Clinton was named after one of New York's early governors who helped build the Erie Canal, kind of ironic. And he had only passed away a few years before. So this was the first locomotive built in the United States, and it could operate I find this pretty astounding when I look this up. Um, it could operate at speeds of up to 30 miles an hour. That's, that's really fast. And the travelers rode in cars that were built from horse carriages, or what I would say looks more like a stagecoach. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have this funny-looking, I don't mean to insult anybody <laughs> by saying <laughs> that, um, this funny-looking locomotive that's pulling these three carriages that look like stagecoaches on a railroad track. And uh, there were people that would sit inside or they could sit on the top. And this thick, black smoke with flying cinders came from that locomotive and came back. And it would affect the people who were riding in these stagecoaches. So much so that one of the first riders, a first-hand witness account, he describes how the people that were on top were holding umbrellas to save them (laughs) from the cinders. But what happens when a hot cinder hits your umbrella? It catches on fire. Oh my god. So, like in the first mile, he said everybody threw their umbrellas, you know, <laughs> off, and um, said that it was a pretty exciting trip. I can only imagine Let's just, so. you know, putting out various fires <laughs> on people. That, that's what it was like, um, you know, just though that first trip. But it took 45 minutes. There you go, it's faster. Compared to a day, yep. Uh,
0: So so with how much faster it was, I take it, all cities and all corporations just loved it so much and and all invested (laughs) in it, right? Yeah,
1: you would think so, right? (laughs) I, I mentioned that that first trip was in 1831, and it was that railroad, the Mohawk and Hudson Railroad, was actually chartered in 1826 by George Fierstenhaus. That made it the first chartered passenger train in the United States. But it took more than four years to actually get it going because not everybody was in love with the railroads. So it, it, it was advertised to help the Erie Canal. The, the Erie Canal and the railroad were going to exist side by side and everything was going to be great. But the canal companies were a little uh, threatened by that. Steamboat companies joined forces and there was also, it's called the Albany and Schenectady Turnpike Company. So if if they they all ganged together, too early to say lobbying, but it was like they lobbied against it, right, um, to try and stop the railroad. So they succeed in delaying the construction, as I said, but they couldn't stop it entirely. Everybody could see by 1831, even though it was kind of a really hot seat <laughs> to be in for some people. Um, that it was uh, that this was the wave of the future. So by the next year, by 1832, there were 25 railroads that had applied for corporate charters in New York State. And Schenectady actually turned into a hub. So there was the Saratoga and Schenectady, the Utica and Schenectady railroads, and it became quite the hub for railroad travel. And as I said, the cities along the canal continued to grow and prosper.
0: So how does this all tie in with the men that you mentioned in the beginning? So what is Theodore Judah's connection to all of this?
1: So this is where Theodore Judah um, comes in. And see, I had to I had to tell you all this so we could bring Theodore <laughs> Judah in. Okay, so as I said, Schenectady was this hub of railroad travel. And remember at the beginning I talked about Albany, Schenectady, Troy, those three cities? Mm-hmm. Well, um, the city of Troy was feeling a little left out. Schenectady's is this hub of travel. Albany's the capital, but they wanted to get in on the action. And what that action was, was giving them a connection to this westward um, route and trade, right? Commercial trade. So uh, they opened the Troy and Schenectady Railroad. And that is the railroad that Theodore Judah got his start. So that's the connection, is that Troy and Schenectady Railroad. Now, Judah actually was born in Connecticut, but because the cities were growing and everything, his father was a pastor, and his father was called to this city of Troy, New York, to have his own church. So Judah, as a young boy, think around the age of seven, they moved to to Troy to, well, his father worked at St. John's Church. Unfortunately, his father died when Judah was just a young boy of about 13 years old. So he had been a student at a new school that was, for, that was uh, geared towards science and math and um, civil engineering, which was a very new field back then. So building that Erie Canal, they didn't have civil engineers. They just had to kind of figure it out as they went along. Well, now the railroads are coming in. There's this great demand for civil engineers. So Theodore Judah attends this Rensselaer school. It's unclear how long he was there. He was there for a year, whether he completed his program or not. But he had this internship with a famed civil engineer on the Troy and Schenectady Railroad. His family, his mother moved to New York City, leaving young Theodore in uh, Troy to learn about the railroad. So it was quite fateful that he ended up there and that he that he learned this line of business. And I'm not quite sure, I'm not here to go into a whole biography of, of all these people, but Theodore Judah worked at several railroads throughout New York State and throughout New England before he came out to California for the opportunity to work on California's first railroad. Um, so that's what brought him out here and Theodore Judah is, is the main inspiration. He was, he was the person who had that dream of working on that transcontinental railroad. And um, so without Theodore Judah, we may not have ever had that route up and over the Sierra. That's how he discovered that we could have this, this route here to have Sacramento as the terminus for that. So I don't know. You know, if it wasn't for Troy, New York, the Troy Schenectady Railroad, Theodore Judah might have taken an entirely different path in life.
0: It's crazy to think about just how coincidental everything is. Like his his dad just so happens to be assigned to Troy, New York, and then his son ends up being like the guy in railroading in the West. Right. It's just yeah. Right,
1: when it's all so new. It's yeah. all so new back then. <laughs>
0: uh, so another founding member of the Central Pacific had connections to that Rensselaer school you mentioned that Theodore Judah went to. Uh, So who was that, how was he connected, and uh, how was his family connected to
1: that area? So the person, yeah, the person that you're referring to is Edwin Crocker, E.B. Crocker. He also graduated from that school, um, the, the Rensselaer school which went through a couple of name changes. Today, it's, it's a really highly respected school in the area. It's known as RPI, which is the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So it has you know kept, that's, that's the kind of school that has been um, really strong in that region. And, um, and just to give everyone a little bit of a perspective on E.B. Crocker, he is also the person who inspired the Crocker Art Museum here in Sacramento and it was based on the art that he collected um, when he went to Europe, spent a couple years in Europe in the 19th century. But E.B. Crocker was the first-born child of Isaac and Eliza Crocker, and a little like Theodore Judah, he wasn't born in Troy. He was born in another city in New York State, but They moved to Troy because the business opportunities were really good for Isaac, who was the father. It depends on what you're reading to find out what exactly Isaac did for a living. The Troy City Directory lists Isaac as a merchant. And in Empire expressed by David Bain, uh, he describes him as a liquor wholesaler. And maybe there's not a whole lot of difference (laughs) in there anyway, I don't know. But either way, his business um, prospered and the family did really well until the Panic of 1837, and a Panic is, you know, it's a it's a bad economic turn, right? And there wasn't much to do if you're if you lost your business then. So this actually ruined the Crocker family's finances. Now Charles was just 13 years old when this happened. Edwin was older. He had the opportunity to go to school and to finish his education, but as I said, Charles was just 13, and the family is in ruins. And they had some—he had some other um, siblings as well. Well, the story goes that Charles got a job selling newspapers for a new newspaper in town, and he had to beg the man, you know, for the job. He was just 13 years old. This new newspaper was called the New York Transcript. So. He talked this newspaper's proprietor into giving him the papers, and he promised that he would increase the paper's readership. Reluctantly, the owner agreed, but he wasn't sorry for that because in six months, uh, Charles not only paid for his housing costs, but he supported his mother, his three siblings, while his father, Isaac, had left to go to Indiana to scout out the forest land there to see what kind of a living they could have in Indiana. So E.B. Crocker worked as a civil engineer for that railroad, the Mohawk and Hudson Railroad. And, um, and it seems like 13-year-old Charles worked and helped support the family until they all moved to Indiana when their father sent for them in 1836. So as far as that transcontinental railroad connection, uh, Charles and Edwin, both ha- they were both went to California as a result of the gold rush, called by the gold rush, as many were at that time. Um, Edwin has- had gotten his law degree while living in Indiana, so when he moved to California, um, he was a lawyer, had a successful practice there, and Leland Stanford, who was the governor of California at that time, appointed Edwin to the California Supreme Court. And then when he left the court, he joined up with the Central Pacific Railroad as their attorney and worked very, very hard for the railroad. A lot of times we talk about the Big Four. Uh, Our students are taught that term of the Big Four. Here at the Railroad Museum, we give E.B. Crocker a lot of Uh, Credit, and that it's not the big four, it should really be the big five if you're going to say anything about that. So E.B. Crocker and then his brother, Charles, was the chief of construction for the Central Pacific Railroad. He's the guy that was probably most responsible for uh, suggesting that the railroad hire the Chinese railroad workers, which the Chinese railroad workers made up 90% 90% of that workforce. And once again, that railroad may not have ever been built <laughs> if it wasn't for Charles and E.B. Crocker and um, and finding the, the workers to do that hard work of building the railroad.
0: Uh, but wait, there's more. So tell me about the last Central Pacific Railroad founder. Uh, did he also come to Troy?
1: Okay, yeah, it looks like they're Troy-connectedies we're talking about here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the last one I just mentioned, Leland Stanford. He was, um, actually his mother called him Amasa. That's really what his first name was, which I found out about reading um, a book by Roland DeWolk and his 2019 book, American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford. I really enjoyed reading that book because he gave that early part of Leland Stanford's life of growing up in upstate New York and how his family actually came to live in upstate New York. So it was actually, um, I guess it was his grandfather, soon after, well, let me just say, soon after the Revolutionary War, so people started moving from that core area of New England, and that's when you saw a lot of New York State and that area getting settled. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in the Stanford family. And um, they built, they had a tavern, they they ran a tavern. So Leland Stanford was born in, it's a town called Watervilleet, which is just outside of Albany, New York. And um, that was in 1824 that he was born. It was his grandfather, Lyman Stanford, who moved from Massachusetts, as I said, to uh, to settle in, in, um, in upstate New York. So he might have even helped build that Albany Schenectady Turnpike, which is the road that led between them. We don't really know, but there was, he figured that there, people would need some kind of sustenance somewhere along that route and he opened this Bull's Head Tavern. Well, then when the Erie Canal was built, it turned out that his tavern was in this prime location, only about 300 yards from, the the canal ran about 300 yards from the tavern's front door. So they made a lot of money there. The Stanfords prospered and eventually moved from that place, that tavern where they lived right above there, to a very nice neighborhood in Albany. So the the family did really well. Now for Leland Stanford, he did not attend that same school, the Rensselaer School, that Judah and the Crocker, or at least E.B. Crocker went to. It looks like Leland Stanford was a little bit of, um, well, as DeWalt calls him, a lazy student. So he actually, went to school in Oneida County, which is about a hundred miles west of Albany or Schenectady. And he stayed at the Oneida Institute of Science for one day. He went to the Clinton Liberal Institute for about two years, and then one year at um, the Casanova Seminary. So, but DeNope notes the irony that the founder of Stanford University, which is one of the nation's most prestigious universities, never graduated from college, nor even a secondary school. And Leland Stanford moved to California. Um, His brothers were there, They, they were merchants, they had a store, and Leland Stanford went on to become the governor of California, and then of course the president of the Central Pacific Railroad.
0: Perfect. So now that we've covered the, the Central Pacific connections, um, I hear there's also a Union Pacific connection to this, <laughs> to this
1: railroad. Yes. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there might be a lot of them, but the one that I found mm-hmm. was Thomas C. Durant, and he was pretty high up in the Union Pacific. He was the vice president of the Union Pacific Railroad. He also had ties to the region. Now, he was born in Massachusetts. But when he was 20 years old, he graduated. He had moved and graduated from the Albany Medical College, which was a private medical school. Um, And he graduated with a license in ophthalmology. So for the next two years, he served as an assistant professor in the school. So he was a doctor. which you know a lot of if you know anything about the railroad you know that but he didn't stay with that because he started working for his uncle who lived in albany and his uncle had a company called durant lathrop and company and they were a grain exporting company so they worked with all these big cities and durant oversaw the office in new york city and while he was working there it kind of sparked his curiosity for inland travel, and that's what attracted him to the railroad industry. So he moved into that world in about 1851, and then, of course, he was the vice president of the Union Pacific Railroad, which is the railroad that built west, and the, the Central Pacific Railroad started in Sacramento and built east, and then those two railroads met at Promontory Summit in Utah Territory on May the 10th, 1869. Relive the magical journey of the Polar Express on an hour-long train ride to the North Pole. Enjoy hot chocolate and delicious cookies as you ride along with many of the story's characters, like the conductor, the dancing chefs, and a ghostly hobo. Once you reach the North Pole, Santa will come on board to give each passenger a silver sleigh bell, the first gift of Christmas. The Polar Express train ride runs from November 26th to December 16th. Tickets go on sale to the general public on September 28th, 2021 at 9 a.m.
0: So now we have the Central Pacific and all their connections in there, the Union Pacific and all their connections. So it's got to be all of these connectedies, right?
1: Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) There's one more. But it's not a person. So I was just talking about how those railroads, the Central and Union Pacific railroads, met at Promontory Summit. And um, probably, I would assume... I don't throw the word iconic around very much, but this one photograph is truly iconic of the two railroads meeting, you know, the two cow catchers of those locomotives meeting and all the men around, and there's the champagne bottle that they they have that they're handing across, and it's, it's called the Meeting of the East and West. That photograph, if you look on the left-hand side, that photograph that locomotive is the jupiter locomotive and where do you think that jupiter locomotive was built schenectady new york so there's the other Schenectady. but if you can indulge me a little bit how it even got there is a story so um, it was built the jupiter locomotive was built in schenectady by the schenectady locomotive works There were four locomotives built at the same time. There was the Jupiter, the Storm, Whirlwind, and Leviathan. And back then when they built these locomotives, they shipped them around the Horn, around Cape Horn, Mm -hmm. South America, and in pieces. And then when they arrived here, they had to rebuild them. In May, May 1869, as I said, May 10th, was when that big ceremony, the Gold Spike Ceremony was held. Well, Leland Stanford left Sacramento on May the fifth, which actually he left on May fifth because the original date was supposed to be May the eighth, mm-hmm. but that's probably another story to get into. He left Sacramento on uh, May the fifth, going to that gold spike ceremony, and somewhere along the line, so it was along the Truckee Canyon, they their train hit what's written as an immense log. It was really an immense log. It was 50 feet long, and it was three feet in diameter. And it did quite a bit of damage to that locomotive, which was called the Antelope. So that train limped along to another railroad in Nevada, and the Antelope was switched out for another locomotive, the Jupiter. So that's how the Jupiter uh, got its place of fame, right? And uh, you know, unfortunately, the original Jupiter is no longer around, but there is a recreation of it at Promontory, which someday I'll get to. I've never been there.
0: <laughs> Perfect. So, so why are there so many connections to, uh, to the railroad in Schenectady?
1: Well, there's really just one answer.
2: I got a mule. Her name is Sal. Fifteen miles on the Erie Canal She's a good old worker And a good old pal Fifteen miles on the Erie Canal We haul some badges in our day Filled with lumber, coal and hay We know every inch of the way we go From Albany
1: yeah, you know, I've been talking about the Erie Canal a lot and and um, originally, I didn't quite know what what it was, but it's it's the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal, the cities grew and and prospered uh, along the way. We saw that's what happened with Troy, and that's probably what attracted the Crocker family to Troy. That's what attracted the Judah family to Troy, this big new church in this big city. Um, the Erie Canal, you know, I talked about how it reduced, how how um, it took one day just to travel between Schenectady and Albany. But traveling across New York State, it reduced time tremendously. And the freight costs plummeted. So it used to cost $100 a ton to ship goods. But when the Erie Canal was built, that dropped to $5 a ton. That's huge. That's significant. So it caused... A lot of the growth that caused these people to these families and many, many others to come, it caused exponential growth, I should say. Um, For the Stanford family, maybe not quite. Stanford's grandfather moved to upstate New York, but look at the wealth that they were able to get because of the Erie Canal, which enabled Stanford to go to all those different schools, maybe. (laughs) And it was the Erie Canal, of course, that inspired the growth of the railroad. And with that growth of the railroad, with Schenectady being that hub for the railroad, that's when a group of of business people decided that, hmm, maybe building locomotives would be a really good business to get into. So I said that was the Schenectady Locomotive Works, which eventually merged with some other companies and became the American Locomotive Company or Alco. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about Alco. And um, that's probably a whole other uh, podcast talking about that connection with Alco, how that inspired the growth of the General Electric Company in Schenectady, New York. And there's one other person, well, there are a lot of connectedies, but um, George Westinghouse, also born in Schenectady. But he doesn't really belong in this podcast because he's not part of the Transcontinental
0: Railroad. (laughs) Almost sounds like the Erie Canal made Schenectady into like the Silicon Valley of the (laughs) railroad. Yeah,
1: that's that's very well put.
0: (laughs) Awesome, well what what got you interested in this area and why is it important to
1: you? Well, um, perhaps you've been able to tell that there's a, maybe you've sensed a little bit of pride in my voice, but (laughs) I was born and raised in Schenectady and as I said, when I came out here, my love is history and doing the research, then I was just excited to find all of those different uh, connections. So I've actually lived out here in California longer than I ever lived in Schenectady, but I've done so much research on state and local history here in California that it was during the lockdown with, um, with COVID, I thought, you know, it might be timed for me to look into my own hometown history. And it was actually looking through a scrapbook of my grandmother's. And it was a scrapbook that she had made in 1926. And she had these newspaper articles in there celebrating Schenectady's centennial in 1926. And I was like, wow, 1926, they were celebrating 100 years of railroad history in Schenectady? um, it was really fun and maybe a little therapeutic to do that research and just expanded my knowledge of the history of the railroad in the United States. So it's great fun. Lots of connections that I couldn't even get to in a short time here.
0: So you might even say that you are the final schenectady connectivity <laughs> between the Transcontinental <laughs> Railroad and uh, Yeah, that area. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing this story with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It was fun.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Our next episode, airing October 8th, will track how legendary country musician Johnny Cash used the railroad in his music. Thank you all for listening.